Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Ashley Palmerales, and I am so glad to be here with Dr. Edward Wilson Lee, author of Catalog of Shipwrecked Books, Christopher Columbus, His Son, and the Quest to Build the World's Greatest Library. Edward teaches early modern literature, Shakespeare, and medieval literature for University of Cambridge's Sydney Sussex College. Edward's published book, on which we focus today, A Catalog of Shipwrecked Books, details the life of Hernando Colon as he sailed with his father, Christopher Columbus, on Columbus's final voyage to the New World, which was a journey of disaster, blood mutiny, and shipwreck. After Columbus's death in 1506, 18-year-old Hernando sought to continue and surpass his father's campaign to explore the boundaries of the known world by building a library to collect everything ever printed. Cologne's library was a vast holding organized by summaries and catalogs, which was really the very first database for exploring a diversity of written matter. Hernando traveled extensively and obsessively amassed his collection based on the groundbreaking conviction that a library of universal knowledge should include all books and all languages and on all subjects, even material often dismissed. The loss of part of his collection to another maritime disaster in 1522 set off the final scramble to complete this sublime project as such was a race against time in realizing a vision of near impossible perfection. Dr. Edward Wilson Lee, I am so honored to meet with you today to discuss your book, The Catalog of Shipwreck Books. Thank you very much, uh, Powell, for having me on your podcast and um, and happy Thanksgiving. Thank you to you as well. And uh, now if we could delve into questions on this very special book, would you mind introducing yourself further and providing the listener a synopsis on the organization and research history of your book? Uh, yeah, so as you said in your very kind introduction, um, I am a literary specialist, but uh, my work tends to focus on the history of the book, of libraries, of print. So I'm, I'm very interested in, I suppose, the stories behind reading, um, the, the stories of how particular books get to people and what they do with those books. Um, and a lot of my work has uh, has focused on peeling back, um, I suppose, uh, national narratives uh, about um, national histories of literature and so on and so forth, and and trying to go back to a time before these narratives when people read books from from all over the place. And in the course of doing that research, um, uh, my uh, colleague Jose Mireya Perez Fernandez, who from the University of Granada, and I thought about doing a project um, on uh, the library of Hernando Colon, um, which was a, a hugely kind of uh, transnational library, even a, a library with universal ambitions, which wasn't particularly Spanish or, or even necessarily European in its conception, but, but wanted to gather and organize books from everywhere and think about how everything fit together. So it was an enormously exciting uh, project to work on from the point of view of my research. But the more I started to learn about this, uh, about Hernando's story and about his library, I I just couldn't believe that this wasn't a wider, uh, a more widely known story. Um, 
you know, it's got all of the the recipes, you know, all, all of the, the ingredients for an extraordinary kind of adventure story, uh, this epic quest to try and complete uh, an impossible project of building a universal library, this uh, father-son relationship, this tortured father-son relationship between um, uh, Hernando and his father, Christopher Columbus, um, uh, for reasons that we're, we're going to talk about, I think, later in, in the podcast. So I couldn't believe that this this story um, wasn't better known, both because of its internal dynamics, because of its internal interest, but also because of its uh, relevance to today, and that this is really a story, an adventure story about information. Um, and, you know, we live in, in an information age. Um, and I, I've often joked to people that if I had gone... Um, you know, this this is a book written for a general audience um, who aren't particularly specialists in uh, book history or, or on Columbus or anything like that. And, and I've often joked that if I'd gone to uh, an editor and said I wanted to write a, a bestseller on Renaissance book catalogues uh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, they would have laughed me out of out of the shop. But anyone who's lived through the last 20 years um, doesn't need any convincing that uh, how organized how, how information is organized um, has a profound effect on how we shape the world you know we've lived through uh, the ways in which uh, search algorithms have uh, rapidly and violently reshaped the, the way in the world in which we live so it's very much a story for today as well so um, yeah so I, I spent um, I've spent the better part of uh, 10 years working on um, on Hernando's library Um uh, and it's resulted in, in this biography that we're talking about today and in a, a more in-depth study of the library's holdings and, and organization, which is, as you said, uh, is co-authored with my, my colleague, Jose Maria Perez-Fernandez, and is coming out next year. Thank you so much for explaining that. And I am so excited to read that book. Um, and so now on to questions on uh, the catalog of Shipwreck Books. Um to begin, I find it utterly fascinating that much, if not all, that we know of Christopher Columbus or Cristobal Colón comes from the recordings of his son, Hernando Colón, who shares a common link of what appears to be this wild sense of self-righteousness. Uh, could you elaborate more on your book's explanation of this association? Yeah. So um, just just for those who, who are unfamiliar with this, um, this part of Columbus's story, um, uh, Hernando is Columbus's second younger illegitimate son, um, and despite the fact that you know the titles and um, that the estate and so on and so forth passed to Diego, the older son, it was really Hernando um, uh, who inherited or believed he inherited in some ways the, the visionary mantle of his father, um, although. Uh, you know, Columbus is quite rightly a, a, an immensely kind of controversial figure nowadays. But what people, I think a lot of people don't know, is that uh, an enormous part of this story has to do with the fact that much of what we know about Columbus is down to um, the first biography written of Columbus, uh, written by Hernando, uh, written by his son. Uh, and it is an act of idolization. Um, for a father who he clearly worshipped um, and who he wanted to prove himself a worthy son and heir to. Um, but it also was written at a time when Columbus um, Columbus's fortunes were at an ebb. I mean, it was written um, 25 years after Columbus's death. 
But it was also at a time when Columbus, we have to remember, was not famous during his lifetime and was not really even celebrated immediately after his lifetime. In fact, Columbus's fame was really a 19th century, um, uh, an 18th, 19th century thing, which fit into this romantic narrative of kind of visionary, solitary visionaries. And so in a way, Columbus's fame only came much later. But he, such fame as he had in in the, the period immediately after his life, um, was, as I say, down to this biography. But the biography was written uh, because Hernando feared that his father's contribution to what he saw as this great historical moment was actually just fading away into nothing. So the Spanish crown, um, you know, there's, there's this extraordinary story behind it that the Spanish crown in 14... Um, in 1492, uh, at the Capitulaciones de Santa Fe, promise Columbus vast rights over whatever he finds when he goes off sailing, um, uh, and only later realized that uh, it would be madness to stick by this agreement because it would make Columbus unbelievably rich. Um, and therefore, you know, the rest of Columbus's life and, and much of Hernando's life is characterized by the Spanish crown clawing back these uh, enormous rights that they have granted to the Columbus family. Uh, and so there's a sort of pendular swing in, in Hernando's life between moments where um, Columbus's um, fortune and the family fortune and Columbus's fame is, is kind of guaranteed or looks secure and times when uh, it, it, it looks like it's it's disappearing. And the biography is really written at one of the um, at one of the, the kind of ebbs of that that fortune, uh, where the Spanish crown has decided actually that maybe Columbus was not uh, the person who uh, you know uh, the first European to sail o- over the Atlantic to to the Americas after all, um, that maybe someone else did it, uh, and that would allow them to to kind of um, uh, renege on these agreements that the Columbus family felt that they had. So Hernando writes uh, the biography of Columbus as an act of, uh, of love and, and idolization for his father, uh, and also as, as a way of trying to persuade the world that his father was this kind of figure of destiny. Um, uh, and, and, you know, had to have been the person who, who, uh, made this, you know, found this new world, uh, and so on and so forth. And the later, um, you know, um, uh, romantic image of of Columbus is heavily based on, as I say, this this not on the letters and other historical documents that really were only discovered towards the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, and revealed a Columbus who was much more complicated and much less um, savory than the the the, the heroic. Um, version told by Hernando. So the, the romantic image that we have of um, of Columbus is, or people, at least until recently, was widely shared of Columbus is, is largely based on this this um, you know uh, uh, adulatory account by by his son. And I think to a certain extent today, um, a, a lot of the the um, tension over Columbus actually comes in part from. Uh, you know, people simply have two different Columbuses in their mind. One of them is Hernando's Columbus, who became the uh, the, the, um, the 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 romantic Columbus, and the other is the, the historian's Columbus, uh, based on on his letters and 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 a slightly fuller understanding of the uh, the historical context. And so, people are actually fighting about which of these versions is is real, as opposed to 
having the same version and fighting over whether or not it's uh, it's a good thing. Thank you. And that's this is so enlightening. Um, and so moving on to part one, the Sorcerer's Apprentice in chapter three, the Book of Prophecies, Columbus misunderstands truth of people and geography, as in the case with Baria, of near the proposed celestial paradise, but all the same takes great risks and manipulating others' misunderstandings when he tricked the Taino, for instance, in part one, uh, the Sorcerer's Apprentice in chapter five, a knowledge of night. Could you explain more on these and other book examples of Columbus's equally existing manipulation and madness? Yeah, so I mean, I think um, this is something, as I say, again, is slightly, um, you know, it's slightly complicated by the fact that all of this information is, is filtered through Hernando. And I suppose one part of your last question that I didn't really answer was um, their, their shared um, belief in themselves as, as visionaries and having um, a place uh, in in history, uh, a kind of fated place in history, uh, in that, you know, Hernando is writing in the biography of his father late in his life when he's in the midst of his own visionary project to construct the greatest library ever built. Um, and uh, he shared with his father, or at least seems to have shared with his father, because to a certain extent, we only have Hernando's word on this, um, this, this delight almost in... Um, thinking of himself as the only person who really, uh, you know, could see the matrix, so to speak, you know, the only person who really saw what the structure of history was. And, and, and actually, quite apart from um, seeking fame and, and adulation and, and, and recognition in his own time, uh, took uh, the fact that no one believed him um, as proof uh, that he was this kind of visionary prophetic figure. And, you know, this this still, to a certain extent, I suppose, remains in Western culture, that um, uh, that great Irving Berlin song, you know, they all laughed at Christopher Columbus when he thought the world was round. Of course, nonsense. Lots of people thought that the world was round. Um, but this idea of Columbus as a, a sort of solitary visionary um, uh, plowing on in the face of the world's um, mockery, that, to a certain extent, does have some kind of historical purchase that I think, uh, um, you know, Columbus uh, thought of himself as um, uh, as being a kind of visionary figure. And, and the proof of that being visionary is that he could see things that other people couldn't. And as I say, Hernando himself thought of himself as a, as a kind of visionary. And I, you know, although we would be very uncomfortable with the idea of him being visionary in the sense of, of having um prophetic skills or some kind of access to the divine that in the way that they would have thought of it. I suppose there is a sense in which um, both the projects undertaken by Hernando and his father are really only possible um, by slightly being in, in denial uh, about the perceivable world outside of them, um, in that Columbus, um, you know, to, to set off west and sail for 40 days um, when you had no idea what was there, uh, to a certain extent required a kind of um, a madness, a, a sort of um, you know, insane self-belief uh, that would allow you to keep going despite the fact that you have no real reason to believe that it's going to turn out well. Um, and I think in a similar way, Hernando's project to build this universal library um, is a, you know, a project that can only be taken 
uh, in the face of overwhelming evidence that it's it's a kind of impossible task that you know the number of books just keeps flowing in and 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 and, and growing and, and and so on and so forth so yes i mean columbus um columbus was uh, was wholly convinced um that he um you know he was a visionary and this to a certain extent justified in his own mind um the manipulation of what he was seeing to fit the narrative that he needed to to fit so there's the you know the famous story of columbus underestimating um the number of leagues that they had sailed west on the first journey so that his um his fellow crew members wouldn't uh get too frightened that they were too far far away from from land from from something that they knew but the again it creates this kind of narrative of Columbus himself being the only person who bears that uh, burden of knowing exactly how far they are from the known world, um, you know, 39, 38, 39, 40 days into this voyage. Um, and I say this, that, that kind of continues, as you say, um, throughout his life. Um, towards the end of his life, I suppose it becomes even more um, uh, furious uh, in that um in a sense, Columbus, you know, Columbus, as we all know, didn't really want to discover the Americas. Uh, the Americas were uh, an inconvenient, or sorry, he didn't want to. He didn't want to hit the Americas. Of course, he didn't discover the Americas. He didn't even want to arrive at the Americas. Uh, they were an inconvenient stumbling block because for Columbus, the the be all and the end all, the only thing that mattered was completing the circumnavigation of of the globe. Um, you know, in that. He felt in the same way that Hernando was later to feel that completing a universal library, a place bringing together in one place um, all the books in the world would kind of flip a switch um, and uh, inaugurate some new epoch in in the world's history. Columbus similarly felt that circumnavigating the the world would be a kind of apocalyptic act of closure, um, that it would, you know, it, it would complete the world in some way that necessarily would lead to the next stage of history which i suppose in, in a different way maybe perhaps it did uh certainly not in the way that columbus was thinking of it um uh but yes in, and i think in order to um convince himself that he had sort of done this um uh towards the end of his life he he continued to persist in the belief that uh the americas were actually part of asia despite the fact that there was growing you know there was pretty incontroversial evidence that it, it wasn't um by that point uh but it was such an important um part of columbus's narrative of himself uh that he you know he he was willing to manipulate whatever he saw to, to kind of fit that narrative um, so yeah, I mean it's it's a kind of fascinating story, but again fa- fascinating in the sense that we're, you know, kind of like a novel with an unreliable narrator. We're only being told about most of this by Hernando himself, who had his own um, neurotic um, uh, idea of himself as a, as a visionary with a place in history um, and a, a you know a fated destiny. Um, so yeah, there's a there's a kind of complicated dynamic that's going on there. That is so interesting. Thank you so much. And uh, still in part one, but chapter five, a knowledge of night. Um, And also further in the book, I see connection with the need for reconciliation of reconciled matters for both Columbus and Hernando, as in uh, with Hernando and Amerigo Vespucci and the new world being named Amerigo uh, and Columbus and Beatriz, uh, the mother of Hernando. 
and his betrayal of her. Uh, so might you delve further on the Catalog of Shipwreck Books' enlightenment of intertwined relationships involving both hurt and healing? Yeah, I mean, one of the, I mean, one of the horrifying things about the Columbus men um, was their willingness in general to subjugate everyone else in the world to this um, vision of their own necessary destiny. And of course, um, this happens to a certain extent with Hernando's mother, uh, who Columbus never marries. And um, and it's an open question to what extent it, it sort of happened with Hernando himself, in that you know, Hernando has an illegitimate son. Columbus actually, um, you know, the evidence suggests that Columbus didn't really make a draw a huge distinction between uh, Hernando and his legitimate brother Diego. Um, uh, you know, he provided for Hernando very well in his will, and uh, Hernando was the one he took with him on what was to be his fourth and final voyage to, to the New World. Um, and Hernando was to cherish various kind of tidbits of things that his father had said about him, which kind of suggested, at least in Hernando's mind, that Hernando was the, the kind of true inheritor of his father's spirit. Um, you know, as we may discuss later on, Diego, the legitimate heir, was a bit of a wastrel um, and a courtier and a fop and, and um, never really made much of himself. And so Hernando certainly believed, and maybe with good reason, that he had inherited the kind of um, the, 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 the visionary epochal um, characteristics of, of his father. Um, uh, but uh, it, again, I mean, it, it clearly, it was a belief that he only uh, had half confidence in. So I, I think to a certain extent, the entire story of Hernando's life is a story of uh, a son who wasn't entirely sure of his father's affection, um, a, a son whose father spent most of his childhood away, um, trying desperately to demonstrate that he was um, Columbus's son in spirit, um, if not um, in law. Um, and, you know, the, his own, you know, library project, um, his, uh, his biography of his father, um, his tireless dedication to the Columbus family um, fortunes in, in, you know, defending them at uh, at the Spanish court in, uh, and in uh, traveling to Rome to defend their rights as, as well um, in various ways. Uh, you know, all of these are um, part of trying to sweep up the, the emotional wreckage, I suppose, that um, Columbus left in his wake. Uh, in that, uh, you know, in seeking to uh, fulfill what he saw his as his destiny, uh, he was perfectly willing to to dispense with um, everyone else's feelings and uh, and to kind of leave people in in his wake. So, as I say, I think yes, there uh, there's a lot of the the, the book which. Um, you know, although I'm not necessarily a fan of, of, of kind of pop psychological explanations, I think are hard to see as anything other than, than a, you know, Hernando's deep yearning for a form of approval uh, from his father um, that I, I suppose, in a sense, he was deprived of by his father's absence and by his father's early death. Uh, but yeah, uh, so I think that, you know, I, I think... Uh, a lot of the story needs to be kind of understood in that in that emotional context as well, um, as well as you know, uh, you know, there are many other economic and cultural contexts that are 
that are needed to understand all of these things. But I think they were obviously experienced at a, an immediate personal level in, in very kind of emotional terms. Thank you for explaining that. And um, now on to additional wrongs of Columbus, but not only in part one, chapters two and three, does one read that Columbus was himself not without participation in slavery, but also in part two, a language of pictures in chapter six. Uh, it's noted that Hernando turned a blind eye to the atrocities on which the empire he served was built. Using this information from these chapters and others in part in the Calada of Shipwreck books, could you provide more on Columbus and Hernando's lack of virtue and holding fast against the use of slavery in their time? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, you, you know, this is a very um, complex and, uh, and um, difficult part of the story. Um, I think there's a, to a certain extent, there's a narrative desire to tie um, Columbus perhaps more closely to, to slavery than he can be in the sense that I think um, it only feels right that the figure on whom Western exceptionalism um, was founded, the idea of Columbus as the exceptional figure, should be equally um, guilty of uh, of the West's greatest sin in terms of um, the, the transatlantic slave trade. So it, it would feel narratively neat for uh you know, one and the other to be two sides of the same coin. I think history is a little bit messier than that. Columbus was a horrendous figure in many ways, um, uh, but to a certain extent, he and, and he did actually propose um, an early form of of the slave trade, um, which at the time uh, was uh, was passed over. Um, but in a way. It, it wasn't really something he was certainly heartless in that regard. It wasn't really something that interested him very much because, as, as I've you know, already said, Columbus was obsessed with this idea of completing the circumnavigation of the world. He was no um, governor. Uh, you know, he was made uh, governor, viceroy of, of, of Hispaniola. Um, but he, um, you know, this that was for him a, to a certain extent a kind of clog around his leg. He he did not want to be a sedentary governor of somewhere, somewhere that had to actually make good on the promises that he had made. That this was a, a land of milk and honey, a place where the gold would simply kind of um, you know be washed up on the beaches. He wasn't. He didn't really want to be um, involved in uh, in making all of that work. Uh, he wanted. You know, to be to be off completing what he saw to be his um, his historic fated mission. And I think similarly, Hernando, um, Hernando, uh, there are various times when Hernando um, uh, is gifted um, an encomienda, um, uh, and um, you know, very possibly sells it right on. Uh, he's not without. Um, he certainly shows no. Um, you know, no direct, no, no um, uh, attempts to to resist the the growth of the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, although he's not particularly in, involved in it either. But again, you know, it's it's a, it's a complicated period in which um, Bartolome de las Casas, um, you know, often or at least at one point thought of as as the kind of great uh, founder of human rights for his thinking about the the Taino and the um, the native peoples of the Americas and, and their rights um, as, as human beings himself was largely unconcerned with 
the rights of uh, of Black African people. Um, and so, yeah, on the you know, on the one hand, I think there was uh, Hernando and uh, Hernando and Bartolomé Las Casas were um, reportedly quite close. Um, Bartolomé Las Casas used a lot of Hernando's materials to write his. Uh, brief history of the destruction of the Indies and his um, his his other historical works. He wrote, and supposedly he and Hernando um, proposed uh, a form of um, uh, of overseas expansion um, to, um, to 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 Charles the uh, Fifth um, in a way that might have led to, in, in much more along the kind of Portuguese model, where instead of you know, physical conquest and um, uh, um, settlement. Uh, it was much more a string of trading stations, which might have led to you know um, world history having taken a, a slightly different form than it did. So, as I say, I think um, uh, there are lots of aspects of um, Hernando's um, engagement with uh, certainly of Columbus's and of Hernando's engagement with the world, which is um, which is very unsavoury. Um, on the other hand, I think that you know, uh, linking um, the you know linking these things together is is a slightly trickier and messier historical um, process. But I think it certainly is the case that um, as with so many things, the you know so many parts of the history of Western exceptionalism, the the, the Columbus narrative the the you know and and narratives of the possibility of universal um, closure, universal libraries, universal languages uh, allowed people to to look away from the the reality of the kinds of exploitation um, on on which these projects were built. Thank you. I really appreciate you answering that. And to now tie in uh, Diego, Hernando's brother, as your book explains, Hernando worked tirelessly for both his father, Columbus, and his older brother, Diego, yet in the end was deprived of so much. Uh, and in part three, you reveal um, an, an atlas of the world, um, chapter 12, cutting through a bit on alternative feelings regarding his relationship with his brother, Diego, but throughout his devotion to his father and his family's name, um, that just seemed to consume him. Uh, could you delve further into what you learned through your research on writing uh, for this book on Hernando's true feelings, uh, deeper sentiment regarding his brother, father, and uh, greatly the family name? Yeah, I mean, I, it's um, you know, it's difficult. I, I think um, uh, having spent so long writing a biography of someone, it's quite difficult not to become quite attached to and defensive of them, even if they are problematic in various ways, in the ways in that like Hernando is. But I, I think certainly one comes away from looking at the, the Hernando story and, and his relationship to his family, feeling um, immensely aggrieved on his behalf that he is kind of, uh, you know, like Tom in The Godfather. He is the kind of family conciliary who works tirelessly for the family, but really, you know, doesn't get very, very much in in, in return. Um, you know, so uh, as I as I mentioned before, Diego, the legitimate son, um, is a bit of a wastrel. Um, he eventually uh, manages to um, make a. Um, uh, a marriage, uh, a very advantageous marriage to one of the most um, powerful people in Spain. Um, 
on the, which is something that might help them to actually make good on all of these claims over new world things that Columbus was promised in 1492. Uh, and so this is kind of central to the rehabilitation of uh, the Columbus uh, fortunes after the, the you know, the, the rapid decline that they saw at the end of Columbus's life and in the period following that. Um, but as I say, Diego was, was uh, a wastrel who uh, couldn't touch anything without ruining it. So very soon, uh, you know, that they are out of the frying pan and into the fire uh, in that it's revealed that, that Diego has been having various um, extramarital, possibly, possibly premarital, uh, extramarital affairs, premarital um, contracts and sort of things that, that uh, threaten this, threaten not only to, to ruin his um, his marriage alliance, but to make very powerful enemies among uh, his his wife's family. Um, and Hernando is packed off to, to Rome uh, in order to try and sort all this out in in the courts at, at Vatican, uh, you know it goes to the highest court in in in, in Western Christendom. Uh, this case and Hernando is there, kind of as I say, as conciliary, as kind of family, um, uh, you know, the, the family advocate to try and sort all of this out in in the fifteen teens. Um, so yes, he he kind of dedicates his entire life to trying to. Uh, rehabilitate his father's name to trying to um, save his brother from his own worst impulses um, and really gets very, um, you know, very little uh, uh, thanks for it. And, and as I say, it, you know, I won't give too much away since to a certain extent, it's part of the, the energy that drives the narrative of the book. Uh, but he's, he's subjected to a series of betrayals um, by his, uh, by his brother um, who, far from being grateful for what Hernando has done, um, is concerned to write him even further out of his father's legacy than he already was. Um, and, and so, yeah, there's this, uh, you know, much like so many things in Hernando's life, um, the, you know, the, the seeking for approval from a dead father, the attempt to build a universal library that could never possibly be comp- completed, um, the, attempt to belong to a family that doesn't really want him in some ways um you know that they all have this kind of tragic aspect to them uh, but which one which I, I suppose ends up with one feeling rather um uh rather sympathetic towards towards hernando uh, for all as i say you know he's a historical and therefore um not unproblematic figure in in many ways but uh, but but a fascinating one nonetheless Thank you. And last, in both the prologue and epilogue, you note Hernando's gifted library and ability to provide us today with a deeper understanding of the time in which he lived. And even though in a way Hernando predictor at least wished for this all digitalized catalog, he sadly never got to see the actualization of the internet. However, regardless, his obsession in bringing order to the world is shared today and his contributions provide a connection with both the past and present. Uh, could you explain more on what else there is to be said on Hernando's connection and obsession with lists noted throughout the book and even as in relation to another notable cataloger, Moses, um, and the importance of such today? Yeah, so I mean, um, you know, a lot of what we've been talking about today about um, Hernando and his um his relationship with his father and Columbus are in, in many ways just the kind of background or the opening act in, in 
the in the book. Um, obviously, a lot of people are you know they're interested in it because of Columbus and because of the, the slightly different version of Columbus's story that this gives us. Um, but I actually, I end I, I certainly ended the book thinking that Hernando was a much more interesting character than Columbus, and Columbus is only interesting in so far as he was a creation of Hernando's, uh, and so all the things that were interesting about Columbus are actually, in a way, much more a reflection of what Her- Hernando was like than than about what what Columbus was like. Um, but so yeah, most of the book focuses on. Um, uh, on this library and on Hernando himself, as as you say, as a, a bizarre figure in that he's he's a very odd person to write a um, a biography about, in the sense that most you know, unlike biographies of later figures, which might be based on their letters, their diaries, their their kind of reflections on you know their own experience of the world, um, Hernando leaves very little of that. He leaves this biography of his father, which I think one can um, derive a certain amount of sense of who Hernando was from. But most of what he spends his life doing is creating lists. He has this extraordinary um, uh, neurosis for, for, for listing. Um, so from a very early age, um, you know w- what we find are lists that he makes of the things in the world around him. So you know, on his twenty-first birthday, he or around his twenty-first birthday, he leaves a list of all the things that are in his room um, in uh, Santo Domingo uh, in in um, uh, the, in Hispaniola, um, right down to balls of wax and pieces of string. Uh, but again, that was that wasn't anomalous. I mean, he went on in his life um, making lists. Uh, of, of everything in the world around him, um, uh, you know. So he started a, a, a dictionary. Um, he um, started a uh, a geographical encyclopedia of Spain that would be a a, a, a list, basically a de- very detailed list of every human settlement in Spain and all of its um, topographical um, and cultural and political characteristics and its um, its demography and so on and so forth. Um, he starts uh, what uh, is very likely Europe's first botanical garden um, as a kind of a way of listing the plant world. Um, but his greatest project project was to to, to collect um, and list uh, paper things. So uh, he had the largest collection of printed images ever collected and the largest collection of printed music. But most, um, I suppose, most centrally. Uh, this project to collect every book uh, on every subject in every language ever written. And bizarrely for us, perhaps more importantly in Hernando's mind, to create catalogues of that library, um, catalogues that would allow you to, uh, I suppose, see how the world fit together by um, by listing the, the parts of it in, in various different orders, in, in various different ways. Um, so, yeah, it, it is another um, extraordinary, uh, in, in a sense, visionary, but only in that kind of troubled sense that, um, uh, you know, deluded and insane project that Hernando, I think, lives right on uh, the, the cusp of the period when this could even be thinkable. Um, so I think, you know, print is, is the number of printed books is, is, is expanding exponentially during his, his lifetime. And it's, it's really... Um, you know, it's during his lifetime that that the idea that you could even collect um, every book it becomes rapidly you know it becomes clearer that 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 is not a 
a possible thing, not, you know, much less do anything with the books once you've collected them together it's because of the sheer, um, you know, the, the, the sheer variety and the sheer number of them. And so it's, it's something that he attempts and which really isn't attempted again until the Google Books project, um, you know, almost 500 years later. Um, and even that um, rapidly uh, came across, you know, rapidly failed in the face of copyright law and, and so on and so forth. So that, you know, the Google Books project is another is a kind of fasc- another fascinating Borgesian library in that it exists as a universal library, but no one has access to it. Um, other than, uh, I don't know if anyone else has, you know, if you or anyone else have noticed, um, uh, Google Books is rather like Borges's Book of Sand uh, in that it only ever lets you read the pages of books that you don't want to read. Um, and as soon as you get to the page that you don't want, that you actually want to read, it's not there. Uh, so Google Books is a kind of another fascinating, maddening universal library. But uh, Hernando is the last person to, to really try this um, uh, or the, the first person, I suppose, in some senses, and the last person uh, in that it does, it, it certainly had behind it the great library at Alexandria, but has, has important differences as well. And, you know, other great library projects elsewhere. Hernando is, is perhaps the first and last person to try this in a kind of, in a strictly physical form. Um, and it's a project that's doomed to failure, but I think it's a, it's a fascinating, interesting project all the same. Um you know, and, and I think to a certain extent, part of the you know the interest of the story is is what happens as a consequence of that failure. That the that the the library projects that spring up, ambitious though they are, in the generation after Hernando, um, are national library projects. Um, the great national library projects in um, uh, Spain and France and um, um, and, and elsewhere, uh, and they they lead rapidly towards a very national conception of the world um, uh, towards a, an idea that nation states are uh, natural, necessary things. Um, and to the belief of people within those nations uh, that they are somehow um, that the nation is a uh, coherent concept um, uh, which has had an ex- a historic existence separate from um, other people outside of the nation um, and becomes a kind of, uh, you know, insane, um, uh, you know, a vicious circle, a vicious cycle of, of, of confirming the need to confirm the exceptionalism of the nation right up until the point that we find ourselves in today, where we have deeply international problems which need international bodies uh, to solve them, uh, but we can't solve them because we're all so addicted to these national narratives um, that uh, and, and ideas of nationhood, which are, you know, in a, in a sense, the product of the last information revolution. Uh, in a sense, a product of uh, the fact that it it was seen to be impossible to gather all the information in the world, and so, you know, instead, information bubbles, um, which can, collected information on a kind of national level and therefore made the national seem indispensable the, the, the framework of the national seem indispensable um you know came, came into place so i think you know it's it's a uh hernandez library is, is is a fascinating project in itself but also a fascinating part of our collective history thank you that is so very enlightening and edward i would 
so much like to ask even more questions, but I know that we have taken up so much of your time. Uh, but before we do go, um, I just, again, want to thank you uh, for this in-depth look into the catalog of shipwreck books, Christopher Columbus, his son, and the quest to build the world's greatest library. Um, and before we end, uh, could you please, um, uh, if there's anything else to, to tell us about um, this book, um, your upcoming book, any possible future ref, uh, research or anything you'd like to share with our audience? Yeah, um, as, as you say, I mean, I think, you know, we've only really scratched the surface here and I've kind of gestured towards lots of parts of Hernando's life that we haven't really talked about at all. I mean, he, he's such a, a fascinating and varied figure. Uh, but I suppose we have to leave people with some reason to go and actually read and even buy the book. Um, so I won't cover everything. Um uh, yeah, you know, uh, and if they do enjoy, if people, if your listeners do enjoy um, the catalogue of shipwreck books um, uh, and want to find out more about Hernandez Library, as I say, um, Jose Maria Perez Fernandez and I have a book coming out from Yale University Press um, early next year uh, called um, Hernando Colon's New World of Books. Uh, which um, gives you an even deeper dive into the the the, um, uh, the collections and the organisation and the, the the kind of intellectual context that might have even led someone to want to do something like um, conceive of an inter uh, sorry universal um, library. Um, so that's for the real kind of hardcore fans, hardcore um, you know interest in in the project, and I would encourage them to to go and look at that as well. Uh, in terms of my own um, next project, I'm, I'm working on a, another project that's sort of um, uh, similar but different, I, I suppose. Um, so my, my next project is working on um, archives of, of archives and, and globalization and the ways in which um, Europe uh, learned about the world in in um, the 16th century and the what what Europe liked to think of as the, its age of exploration about how um, information came to, to Europe um, and circulated around Europe um, uh, and um, uh, how Europe uh, Europe's conception of itself I suppose uh, changed in uh, in reaction um, to the the information that it was receiving so it's about um, it's again it's a, a narrative about archives around a particularly intriguing um, figure um, um, and a murder, um, and uh, but about archives, um, organizing information, and um, how the world is conceived. So that um, uh, yeah, will be coming out uh, in a couple of years, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, that's what I'm working on at the moment. Thank you so much, and I really look forward to reading those books. Um, I appreciate you, Edward, for being on New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network, and for providing our audience and myself a deeper look into the catalog of shipwreck books, Christopher Columbus, his son, and the quest to build the world's greatest library. I have thoroughly enjoyed our time. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me um, on, uh, Powell, and, and for the uh, you know excellent questions. Um, and uh, yeah, I look forward to talking further in the future.